the sun was beginning to set on the Sea of Tiberias, or commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. The silhouettes of seven men can be seen outlined against the glimmering reflection of the lake. They are making their final preparations for a fishing expedition later that evening in the final moments of sunlight before nightfall. We likely recognize some faces, not all, but some, as we're given a few of their names. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder as they're elsewhere nicknamed. Two fishermen coming out of semi-retirement, looking to get back in the saddle, perhaps. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels, he became a disciple after being mesmerized by Jesus' incredible insight. Then there's Thomas, famous to us for being an outspoken skeptic, but I hate to be too critical of the guy. And then finally, Simon Peter, the one who had the idea in the first place, the one these guys decided to tag along with and fish. And like the Zebedee brothers, he is a former fisherman, likely looking to stretch his sea legs and get back to his fishing enterprise, which has been sorely neglected the last couple of years. They are probably somewhere near the shores of Bethsaida and Capernaum, the northern part of the lake. Familiar territory, to say the least, away from the big city like Jerusalem, where they had last seen all together. Scripture says Bethsaida was Peter's hometown, while later Capernaum is believed where Peter later relocated in life. I wonder how it felt to be back on these shores again, breathing in the night air as it whisks across the sea listening to the waves crash onto the shore, dusting off that fishing equipment they'd likely kept in storage for a long time. I wonder if it was a bit nostalgic, a homecoming of sorts. Or I wonder if their time with Jesus of Nazareth crossed their minds. I wonder if any of them as they surveyed this familiar landscape, had flashbacks of their time with Jesus. I wonder if they could point to certain parts across the lake and identify a memory they had traveling with him. That's where he sat in the boat and preached that sermon. Way over there is where he walked on the water in the middle of the storm. A couple of miles that way is on the mountainside. He fed 5,000 men and their families. All of these are memories now, ones they'd never forget. Jesus left a lasting impact on their lives, but little did they realize that they'd be making new memories with Jesus in a matter of hours. I also wonder if all of their gear and equipment was just how they left it. Peter, along with James and John, having been full-time fishermen for likely three years. And sure, they off and on had to sail across the lake and catch fish while tagging along with Jesus, but they have not been fully employed fishermen like they used to be before Jesus called them. Maybe they're out of practice, a bit rusty, like the feeling when you go back into the office after a really long vacation or absence, you're a little bit discombobulated, having to relearn your rhythms and routines all over again, picking up the pieces where you last left off. 
But I wager muscle memory or instincts had to have kicked in. Being fishermen on these waters is something that you never lose. And as soon as they picked up those familiar nets and grabbed those worn-in ropes and launched out into that boat, it was all like old hat to them. Being professionals and veterans of the trade, it all came back to them instantly. They're back in their element once again. Nothing's changed. Same old, same old. And then the moon soon rose and reflected off the water. Fishermen in those days usually cast their nets at night to avoid the scorching heat of the day, so they have the night shift, so to speak. Then in the mornings, they'd sort through their hall and sell their spoils in the marketplace. Fish were the food of the common people, so the demand for fish was high. There was definitely a profit to be made in this industry, and one could argue it was always the busy season for them. They're only 100 yards or 300 feet offshore, fairly shallow water, casting their nets in and out of the water, getting wet from jumping in and out of the boat to reset and to check their nets, all in pursuit of searching for and trapping and capturing schools of fish hiding underneath the water's surface. All through the night, this was the routine, rinse and repeat all over and over and over again. But come morning, the hard truth sets in that they're unsuccessful. And John encapsulates this in a single deflating phrase, they caught nothing. In other words, it's a bad day in the office for the disciples. Unproductive, unprofitable, taxing, and all for nothing. We can imagine what they're feeling, tired, frustrated, irritated, baffled, and probably a bit hangry by this point in the morning without having any breakfast. I'm sure many of us can resonate with the disciples when we work extremely hard over something and achieve nothing. I think of the housewife who spends all day tidying up only to have it systematically dirtied in a matter of seconds when her children come home from school or ball practice. I think of the school teacher who works tirelessly on the lesson plan for the day only for his or her students to be unruly the entire time, derailing the lesson, or the administration calls an audible midway through the day, hijacking the lesson. I think of the farmer who is raring to get out into the field only to be indefinitely delayed when something inevitably breaks down, whether that's the tractor, the planter, the truck, the pivot, you go down the list. We all know how these disciples are feeling this morning. We know how a bad, bitter day at work probably tastes. And as the morning breaks on their no good, very bad day in the office, with the disciples at their wits end and exhausted, someone is on the shore and begins talking to them. Someone the disciples do not recognize, a stranger, and in an unknown voice he calls out to them, fellas, have you caught any fish? That's the last thing they probably want to answer. Admitting failure and defeat. I wonder if the disciples rolled their eyes at him. I know I would have. 
Kind of sounds like this stranger is pouring salt into an open wound unknowingly with his admittedly innocent inquiry. And to the stranger's credit, he doesn't know the kind of night the disciples have had, toiling, backbreaking, frustrating, or maybe he does. Obviously, the disciples reply with a collective no. And then the stranger continues, and he begins spouting advice to the group of men, giving them a tip or a clue on how to be fruitful for the day. The nerve of this stranger to offer his two cents on their already unsuccessful day at work. And by the sounds of it, he kind of sounds like a backseat driver to me. And perhaps the disciples were thinking to themselves, who is he to tell me how to do my job? I'm sure several of us have had similar experience, whether it's customers or clients or patrons who try to tell us how to do our jobs, especially when we're having a bad day. But perhaps this stranger on the shore has a different vantage point. He might be able to see something the disciples couldn't. Or he knows something that they don't. Maybe his counsel is actually a secret to true success. And maybe this anonymous individual is worth paying attention to. And so they cast their nets on the right side of the boat, just as the stranger suggests. And this time, they actually catch something. A boatload of fish, in fact. So much fish that John says that they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish later to be said, over 150 fish. The boat instantly becomes at capacity simply by, in faith, taking this stranger's word for it. The disciples went from nothing to something instantly, from being dead in the water to abundant and full in the blink of an eye. And then it dawns on them. Only one person they've ever known or met can offer such a suggestion. Only one individual has that kind of insight and knowledge. And beginning with the disciple whom Jesus loved and then trickling down the likes of Peter and the rest, the mysterious stranger on the beach is revealed to be none other than the risen Jesus. Jesus unexpectedly showed up to work with them. And in a way, Easter happened for the disciples again and surprisingly at work of all places. Some interpreters and preachers view this story of the disciples as a negative thing, a blemish on their resume in John's gospel. They believe Peter and the gang are hastily ditching being Jesus' disciples only to be caught red-handed by the resurrected Lord as if the glorified Jesus is somehow spying on them. They read this as Peter persuading a few of his disciples to quickly give up on doing what is expected of them after Jesus is gone and returning to what they did prior to meeting him. And in other words, to say it another way, some think the disciples should be doing more churchy, spiritual stuff as opposed to getting back into business. But I humbly disagree. You're allowed to do that from time to time, within reason, I might add. I don't read the story like they do. So can I tell you how I read it? I'm going to do it either way, so I'm just going to tell you how I think about it. 
Jesus is capable of showing up at all of our workplaces. Jesus is capable of showing up at all of our workplaces. I want to dispel and dismiss this idea that Jesus' presence can only be found in certain places or among certain people with certain professions or titles that we may deem appropriate for Jesus to show up. We see in this story the glorified Lord making himself known when his followers are doing what some might categorize as a secular job or an occupation unrelated to church ministry. The resurrected Jesus takes time to visit his fishermen followers while they're preoccupied with doing whatever it takes to make an ends meet. And this leads me to believe that Jesus is capable of being present with us in all of our workplaces, no matter if it is spiritual or not. Jesus neither criticizes nor chastises the disciples for going back to their old profession and doing what they are doing. He's not disappointed in them or questioning their loyalty to him. Jesus values what they're doing. Them being and doing fisherman things is not an obstacle for Jesus. It is not a sin or defect. They are not lesser disciples because of it. And the same applies to us today. In fact, we see Jesus wants to help them. And this leads me to believe that Jesus wants to collaborate with us in our work, whatever that may be. Jesus wants to collaborate with us in our work, whatever that may be. Whether that's being a commercial fisherman, selling real estate, teaching a classroom of students, or being a student learning in a classroom, helping customers bake, planting crops, working on cars, transporting goods, or even writing and preaching sermons once a week, among other things. Jesus wants to partner with all of us, regardless of our career and vocation, and work with us for something that isn't on his agenda and on his heart. Jesus shows up that morning not to lecture them on why what they are doing is unbecoming of a disciple. Rather, he shows up that morning to help them. The risen Jesus wanted to partner with them in their work. He wanted to essentially become co-workers with them in the fishing industry. And through doing that and experiencing that with them, they grew into becoming better friends with Jesus through that experience. We discover that them fishing with Jesus is actually a part of the discipleship process. What if our jobs are not a barrier to growing in our relationship with God, but instead opportunities to? What if even at our workplaces we can grow in our relationship with God because God has made himself known there and has volunteered himself to help us? What if a part of growing as a disciple of Jesus is noticing him when he's appearing in our workplaces and leaning in when we do? This is not to dismiss or degrade the importance of gathering as a worship community for special times of discipleship. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, this is opening up the possibility that God may be present with us more often than we realize. But Jesus waits for us to notice him and respond to his willingness to work with us. 
Jesus waits for us to notice him and respond to his willingness to work with us. Do we expect, do we look for, do we long for the resurrection power of Jesus to be evident in our workplaces? Do we believe Easter is capable of accompanying us and showing up wherever we usually find ourselves during the week? Or do we put the risen Lord and Easter in a box and only open it up whenever we go to church or we only think preachers and pastors are allowed to open it? What if all it takes is eyes to see, ears to hear, and a willingness to respond to it? Because I believe Jesus can transform our work. Jesus can transform our work. I'm convinced that Jesus can take our mundane, complex, and often difficult situations at work, defying our expectations and transfiguring them. He can take hostile work relationships, he can reconcile them, mend them, and they can become friendly relationships. He can provide breakthroughs and a learning objective after a long semester. Jesus provides opportunities for coincidental timing or sufficient resources for that certain job or project. Jesus can provide that supernatural friendliness and grace when you're interacting with that difficult customer, and we all have them. Even our no good, very bad days at work have the potential to be transformed by acknowledging the presence and power of the risen Lord in our presence. Jesus took a really bad night at work for the disciples, and he transformed it, and Jesus can do the same for us. But the tricky part is not viewing Jesus' presence with us as a surefire assurance or guarantee that everything in our workplaces will go smoothly or even that we'll always be successful in the end. This is not a guarantee. It's easy to read the story that way, but that's not how the Christian faith always works, I'm afraid. There will still be frustrations, setbacks, stress, losses. There will still be empty nets that will afflict us from time to time. But notice the disciples become less preoccupied with the success of the catch and more fixated on the one who told them where to cast their nets. It meant more to them to be in the presence of the resurrected Jesus than to have full nets that day. The setbacks of that night seemingly instantaneously melt away knowing that Jesus was with them and transformed their work into something fulfilling. I think noticing and leaning into Jesus on the shore invites the potential for us to find new meaning and purpose in our work, especially on those hard days. Partnering with Jesus in our workplaces opens up the door for us to find fulfillment in ways we may not have ever thought possible. I don't want to say what that looks like in your situation because I don't want to limit what God can do to my imagination. But perhaps it is as simple as changing something in our routine if Jesus asks us to. Like throwing our nets on the right side as opposed to the left. But it could be something else that Jesus wants us to try but we haven't thought of or we've been scared to do. As far as this story is concerned, when we listen and trust Jesus, there is the potential for our work to be transformed. And while Jesus values our work and wants to collaborate with us in our work to transform it, 
I don't want to dismiss how this story ends. After the disciples realize it's Jesus on shore, they make their way towards land. And John writes, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. The resurrected Jesus had made the seven men breakfast. The risen Lord went out of his way to build a fire and start cooking a hearty meal. The conqueror of death, one branded with scars from the cross, the king of kings, got busy cooking a picnic breakfast. The disciples didn't prepare a meal for Jesus. Jesus prepared a meal for the disciples. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. The risen Lord is serving them when the disciples should have been serving him. Even after Easter, Jesus has not forgotten what he told and preached to them. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And on one level, Jesus is still modeling servitude for his disciples even after Easter. Demonstrating the kind of love he expects his followers to master and exhibit as he has. But on another level... I believe we see Jesus is still taking care of and ministering and nourishing and restoring his disciples. We see Jesus is still taking care of, ministering, nourishing, and restoring his disciples. He still cares for their overall well-being. And he's realistic about it. He's very practical. They are physically exhausted, likely hungry, They are emotionally spent and psychologically exacerbated from long hours of hard work with no payoff until morning. All of that can be remedied by a simple meal and fellowship with him. That's the God the disciples worshipped and followed. And that's the God that we still worship and follow today. And for those of you who are feeling stressed out from your work, finding yourself routinely going into the office and experiencing yet another bad day. Exhausted from the responsibilities resting on your shoulders are those preparing to go into the workforce one day. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is cooking breakfast on the shore just for you. Jesus wants to serve and minister to you if you'll let him. If you can take time from your work, set down your nets, and beat your boat on the shore, Jesus is waiting to restore your body, rejuvenate your mind, and refresh your soul. Simply by being in his presence and allowing his means of grace to work in your life, I believe you'll find relief from the woes of work. What I mean by means of grace is what I've heard it defined before. These are things that God does for us, through us, and in us. And they come in a variety of ways, numerous in fact. Some you probably expect me to say, but things like prayer, Bible study, meditation, silence, solitude, fasting, spiritual direction and counseling, fellowshipping at church, and even partaking in communion, which we will do in a matter of moments. But there are others. There are activities we can lean into and participate in to be in the presence of Jesus and allow his life-giving presence to rub off on us, to allow Jesus to breathe on us the Holy Spirit, to rest in Jesus' abiding presence and let him restore us. But through that process, allow him to gradually transform us back into the image and likeness of God that we were originally created in. 
This is not a call to abandon our work, disregard it or ignore it or to be lazy. Nor is this a call to wait for that one time a year where we get some paid time off and go on vacation. This time with Jesus on the shore can be every day in all honesty. If we engage with Jesus, with what he's doing on the shore, Jesus will engage with us in a personal way. And I believe if we look enough, we will see the risen Jesus on the shore every day, making breakfast and inviting us to dine with him. I believe the risen Jesus still shows up where his disciples are working. Whether that's an office building, a construction site, a school, a restaurant, a truck, or home, Jesus' presence is not limited to churches. It shows up there in a special way, but Jesus is fully capable and apparently willing to show up anywhere he wants to. I also believe the risen Jesus still wants to partner with his disciples in their occupations or vocation. Ministry doesn't just happen in the walls of a church. Spiritual stuff happens everywhere. And I think Jesus is wanting to collaborate with his followers wherever he has strategically placed them, whether that's in a combine, behind the desk at a receptionist, or taking orders at a drive through window. He wants to transform their work into something extraordinary. Define fulfillment in our work because in reality we are doing the Lord's work in a plethora of ways if we do it with him and for him. Our work becomes an extension of his ministry and kingdom agenda on this earth. And finally, I also believe the risen Jesus wants to fellowship with us to allow his presence to restore us, to shape us more and to like who he looks like. This comes by tapping into the reservoir of his grace. God has taken the initiative to be available and willing, but we have to decide whether we're going to engage with them or not. And so ultimately, I believe it is up to his disciples and followers to notice the risen Jesus on the shore, to listen to his voice, to trust and have faith in him, and even have a bit of breakfast with him.